So I guess to answer your question, how do you become a thought leader? The answer is to listen to a lot of different kinds of people and figure out what the smartest of them are saying and then learn how to how to process that and kind of turn it into something that's useful for everybody. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. I'm the other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, are we excited to introduce today's guest for you. We have an incredible episode lined up for you. The reason is that our guest today is none other than the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. We here at the podcast, we're capitalists, we're entrepreneurs. We believe that entrepreneurs and entrepreneurships are the single greatest force for social good in the world today. And as a result, to have this gentleman here as a guest on our podcast is truly an honor for us. I'm speaking of none other than the legendary Jason Pfeiffer. Hello, Jason. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I don't know that I've earned legendary yet, but I appreciate you giving it to me early. In our world, it's legendary. It's totally huh? legendary. Well, fair enough. All right. Well, listen, you know what? We're really excited that you're on the show today. My first question for you is really simple. The name of this podcast is The Business of Thought Leadership. Our listeners are either thought leaders or aspiring thought leaders. And what they're really interested in hearing from you is how you've gone about establishing your own thought leadership. How is it that you've become the executive editor of Entrepreneur Magazine and had- uh, The editor-in-chief of The editor-in-chief, yes. excuse me. I messed that up. The <laughs> I editor was in the chief. executive editor until fairly recently. The editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and established your pedigree as a real thought leader in this arena. Could you go ahead and do that for us and our listener? Sure. Well, it's you know it's really funny. I I've never quite known what to make of the term thought leader because I think I bet a lot of people kind of reach the point where people call them a thought leader without them necessarily feeling like you know they have they have they have reached that status themselves. I am really excited to be in this role and and really love entrepreneurism and and the community around this brand. But I'll be honest with you, the way that magazines work is that the people who take over them are really good at making magazines, and then they're also journalists, and so they they immerse themselves in the world that they cover. But I think of myself as a generalist, and uh, my background has taken me kind of through lots of different kinds of coverage and lots of different publications, and I'll just, I'll just quickly explain. So I started as a newspaper reporter. I went to Boston Magazine and then Men's Health, and then I spent three years at Fast Company, which is where I really learned business. Uh, then I spent a little time at Maxim, and then I came over to Entrepreneur. So I've really jumped around, and I, you know, when people come up to me and ask me about entrepreneurism, I often turn the question back on them, honestly, because I I think of myself as as someone who's on the hunt for stories and on the hunt for understanding people and how they think. And, and I really love hearing from entrepreneurs about the ways that they've built their businesses and the ways that they've faced their own challenges. The thing I love about entrepreneurism is that it's not just a dry business subject, but it's really about 
human connections and human desires and drives. And when entrepreneurs get together, they're often not talking about the nitty gritty finance stuff. You know, they're talking about how to conquer their fears and how to overcome challenges. And, and I, I, that stuff is so, so interesting to me. And I'm really excited to be the person who gets to hear all that and then kind of tell everybody about it, you know, kind of process it and figure out the, the way that it can be most useful to everybody. So I guess to answer your question, how do you become a thought leader? The answer is to listen to a lot of different kinds of people and figure out what the smartest of them are saying and then learn how to pro how to process that and kind of turn it into something that's useful for everybody. That's fantastic. But you know what? Don't sell yourself short. I'd say you absolutely are a thought leader in the area of both journalism and entrepreneurship. All the listening you've done to all these smart people, I think, has made you uniquely equipped to be able to, to speak about this subject. How is it that you went from, you know, writing in some interesting magazines to, to becoming this guru about entrepreneurship? So uh, I took a lot of different risks is the way to best summarize it. And, and I'll give you an example. I used to work as a community newspaper reporter, and that meant that I was going to zoning board of appeals meetings and covering. And by the way, have either of you ever been to a zoning board of appeals meeting? No, fortunately, you no. are so much better for that. Oh, they're so boring. And I had to sit there and you know just kind of listen to this droll and find some nugget of information that I thought the broader community would be interested in, and then run back to the office at ten o'clock and have something filed by ten thirty. And I did that for years. And I, I, it is valuable, valuable work. And without community journalists, we would not be a strong democracy. But boy, I just didn't want to do it. It's just it was it was not the thing that I was passionate about. I was passionate about storytelling and writing and really spending time with people and getting to know stories. And so I really wanted to get into magazines and it was a hard leap. A lot of people don't make that jump from newspapers to magazines. And, and the way that I did it was I started freelancing for Boston Magazine because that was the nearest magazine. I was, I was a community newspaper reporter in central Massachusetts. And after about a, two years, a year, year and a half, something like that, of freelancing for them, I would I would watch the masthead every uh, every issue and see who was moving and if there were going to be any openings and I saw that there was possibly going to be an opening in a lower level position that I could probably slide into, and so I sussed it out a little bit and I talked to some people at the magazine and then I just quit my newspaper job and I moved to Boston, therefore taking on a lot higher rent and said to the editor of that magazine I'm here and I and I'm ready to be hired and he. I think appreciated the hustle and gave me a few kind of larger projects to see what else I could do. And then he hired me. And that was my big break, getting into magazines. And and, and I've done that a number of times throughout my career where I, I just, you took a leap in the way that entrepreneurs always take leaps because you need to, because if, if you play it safe, you're, you're just going to stay in the same spot the whole time. And that's how I've really risen in my career. Every jump that I've taken has required some kind of risk. Oh, we love and honor the hustle and the grit. That's a great story. I read an article of yours, and it was titled, What Entrepreneurs at the Time, I guess, Editor-in-Chief, Looks for When Assigning Stories. And you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. You, you have a very limited amount of stories that actually make it. But the ones that yeah. do make it, I mean, that's a transformational experience for the recognition, the brand, for their particular business. Can you share a little bit about how 
one gets to be featured by a, a major publication like your magazine? Yeah, sure. So this is a subject that I'm going to spend a lot of time on. Every editor's note in the magazine, I'm devoting to how we make editorial decisions. You know, most editor's notes are just something of an advertisement or a, a essay version of the table of contents. And when I was finally given my own editor's note of my own magazine, I, you know, I thought, how can I be really useful? And what is the subject that I know the best, you know, where I don't have to turn to any experts the way that I do throughout the rest of the magazine, where it's just me, what can I offer? And the answer is that I can offer how I think and how editors like me think. Because as I go out and I talk to entrepreneurs, I, I start to understand that we, the media, are as much of a mystery to them as any other part of entrepreneurism that you're trying to master, right? And it's, it puts us in an interesting position because people will pick up the magazine for what I you know, hope is all the great stuff that we're putting in the magazine, but also I'm sure because they wanna be in the magazine, right? And, and I should, I can't accommodate everybody's desire to be in the magazine, but I can certainly explain how we think and how other editors think so that you can start to better understand the ways that media happens. And, you know, people will always, they'll ask me, how do I send, the, you know, should I send a press release? What should be in the subject line? And the, the answer is that is that this is a more casual relationship than I think people understand. I respond best to just emails, emails that are, they're not some form thing. They're not telling me anything in particular. They're, they're, they're just honest and they're telling me interesting things about themselves. And most important for me, and I think for lots of other editors at other publications of all types, is that we're not just looking for success stories. In fact, we're not looking for success stories. Let me just be really flat about it. We're looking for problem-solving stories, right? There's a big difference between the two, even though they're ultimately both stories of success. But I don't want to just say, this company is great, and here's all the cool things they did, because that's a boring story. You don't want to read that story. What you want to read is how somebody thought through a challenge and became a success, right? Which means that you have to be really open with journalists. You have to be able to say, yeah, this is where I totally screwed up. And this is what I didn't see coming. And these were the setbacks. And this is when I felt really bad. And then here's how I buckled down and I fixed that problem. And that's always a really interesting story. That's if you look through magazines, and I really encourage anybody who wants to get press to spend time really critically thinking about the stuff that they're reading in magazines, because you'll see that the stories in there aren't just the story that you necessarily want to tell about yourself, right? You don't, you don't, you, you don't find a story that's just like, this company's killing it and this is what they did, right? You're finding stories in which it's going to feel a little mixed. You're going to, you, you, there's going to be some revealing information about, about stuff that maybe an entrepreneur didn't necessarily want out there, but it makes for a real story and it makes for a relatable and compelling story. And that's the kind of stuff that we want to tell. You know what? That's brilliant. It reminds me of Joseph Campbell and his book, A Hero of a Thousand Faces, you know, the, the hero's journey. Yeah, uh, that's it, right. Where people, you know, there's, there, there's the hero and the hero goes out into life uh, seeking the meaning of life or whatever their purpose is. And then they run across some adversity, some major problems, as you said. They find a way to fix those problems and they overcome the adversity and they come back 
the conquering hero. And, and that's the kind of story that has been told in so many different formats throughout human history, right? I mean, that's, the best stories are in movies and magazines and books, correct? Yeah, that's right. And and that format, it's funny you bring up the hero's journey, that format is just, it's a timeless storytelling technique and it works across everything. An example uh, of, of, of another way that you can do a hero's journey story. So we had a piece a month or so ago in the magazine about how to win on Shark Tank. And it was based on this research that a company called Science of People had done. Vanessa Van Edwards is their founder. And she and a research assistant had sat down and watched every single segment on Shark Tank and coded it by what people did. Did they smile when they walked out uh, of the doors? You know, did they did they physically interact with the sharks, et cetera, et cetera? And then, you know, you looked at the patterns of of what uh what you know what was happening with the winning entrepreneurs and what was happening with the, you know, the ones that didn't get the money. And one of the things that came out of that was that people who told their story in the format of the hero's journey were more successful in getting funding than people who didn't, which is so interesting, right? But it makes a lot of sense because it draws you in. You want to know that somebody suffered. You want to know that people are, they're tested, you know, they're battle tested and that they've come out on top, not just out of sheer luck or, or anything like that, but because they worked really hard at it. And if they got to that level by getting through the stormy seas, you know, you can really bet on them. Brilliantly said. Brilliantly said. There's a another podcast Michael and I like to listen to called Story Brand by a fellow named Donald Miller. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Jason. I'm not, no. Uh, but essentially, their entire business is built upon teaching people how to tell the story of the hero's journey. And they go around teaching their clients that, you know what, you're, you're talking way too much about yourself, just like you said in that little piece uh, on, on how you make your uh, editorial decisions around how, how a story should I, I liked reading about what you told that CEO who said, it's not about you, buddy. <laughs> I hate to tell you yeah. this, right? They tell them, they tell them it's, this, it's not about you. The story is actually about your client and it's about what's going on for your client, what problems you've helped solve for them and how you've turned them into the hero. It's a really, really cool podcast. If you have yeah, time, that, you ought to check sounds, it out. That sounds great. I'll I'll check it out. And yeah, it's it's totally true. If you tell your story the wrong way, people are not going to be interested. I I had said in one of my editor's letters that there was a there was an issue we did where we we devoted like 10 pages to entrepreneurs' mistakes and and talking nice. like that was that was it. The idea was how did they overcome their first big mistake? And a lot of entrepreneurs were really excited to tell us about that, right? Of course, which makes sense because they overcame it already. And therefore <laughs> that story feels feels like uh, you know, it's a trophy for them, right? This was a major problem that I had and I and I overcame it, which is which is great. You should be proud of that. But then we sat down with with one entrepreneur who obviously I'm not I'm not gonna call them out publicly, but their publicist had promised that they would talk about this big mistake in their past. And then the reporter sits down with the entrepreneur and the person won't talk about it. Like just kind of, they just, they just keep trying to divert off onto their successes today without talking about the embarrassing thing from the past. And I'll tell you, you just cannot control the press that way. You cannot only tell the story that you want to tell. You have to tell the story that works for the publication. And if we're coming to you because we want to talk about this mistake and how you succeeded, right? But the mistake as well, and you won't talk about that. We just can't move forward. And so we had to kill that piece and, and that entrepreneur didn't show up in the magazine. 
Yeah, that's too bad for that entrepreneur because, you know, if they'd done their job right, they would have gotten all this wonderful free publicity. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it's so funny how how sometimes people just they just don't want to play along, and 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 we, we we uh, we editors and reporters sit around and we're like, what is your problem? We're trying to give you free publicity here, but all you have to do is talk to us and be open and honest with us. And and uh, they just, some people just can't. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I get it. It's scary and you don't know what we're going to write. And, and you don't have, I mean, let's be really clear. You don't have control of the process, right? We fact check so, and every magazine fact checks. So, so after a story is written and before it's published, a fact checker will get in touch and say, is this true? 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 And make sure that everything is correct, right? But that doesn't actually give you an indication of exactly what's going to be in the story. Uh, because all we're checking is the is the is the bare facts, and so that's scary. And I totally get that it's scary, and and we always have to be cognizant of of the impact that our coverage can have on a business. But you know, nobody is out there to to screw somebody. You know, we're out there to to, to kind of serve our our audience and and tell interesting stories that we hope are going to be useful to them. And and you have to understand what every publication kind of wants to do for its audience. Entrepreneur, obviously, is a magazine that's serving up kind of inspiration and advice and insight into entrepreneurism. And, and most other business magazines, frankly, are, are doing a version of that, but to different audiences. And so you can get a sense, I think, of what a publication wants from you. But you also just have to kind of be willing to go with it in order to get the benefits of it. You know what? If you ever want to interview Michael and I, we'll be happy to tell you all our deepest, darkest, most embarrassing secrets. All right, <laughs> we've got plenty. <laughs> that sounds that sounds good. Let's we'll, let's get to it. Jason, you said some something interesting there at the end that I want to talk a little bit about, which is sure. we spend a lot of time helping people understand their audience in order to put a message in front of them that's relevant. And so you're talking a lot about that today, but I'd love for you to share some of your own individual skills of how to get to the real deal with people quickly. How do you do that as a journalist? You mean like a, like when interviewing them? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I I have a couple techniques that I uh, that I picked up. I mean, first and foremost, if, to just go back to basics, it has to feel like a conversation, right? In the way that we're having a conversation now that just feels like an organic conversation, uh, maybe you guys actually, well, you want to reveal it? Did, did you write down any questions to ask me or are you just kind of shooting from the hip right now? I wrote down questions. I have three. Okay. Yeah, I never, but I come up with them as I'm going too. Yeah. I never write down questions That's right. between you and me. I have a format in mind and I, I, the first question's always the same and the last question's always the same, but in between for me, it's all organic. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, both of those are great in that, in that, if you are going to write down any questions, it's only a, it's only a very few of them, and you probably only use them if you don't feel like you have a natural follow up question. You have something to fall back on, but otherwise, your primary objective here is to just talk off the top of your head, have a natural conversation. I had to learn how to do that, as every journalist does, because it's not easy to get somebody on the phone and just start chatting. Right? It doesn't feel natural at first, but. When you sit there with a list of questions in front of you, as I did as a very young journalist, everything feels really stilted and most important, and this, this is this is the key part of this, most important, when you have a list of questions and you're sticking to that, you are not thinking of 
how to respond to follow-up questions about what somebody just said. You're not listening to them because you're just focused on what the next question is. And sometimes the most interesting thing is something that somebody just kind of like hinted at a little bit when answering another question. And you have to jump on it. You have to ask them that question, right? So that means that you have to be focused more in listening than on what you're going to say next. That skill isn't just relevant to journalism. I think that goes across any conversation that you have in any forum, in any place. You have to be listening and, ha- and and being willing to have an organic conversation. But also here are a couple other things that I've picked up as, I, as I've gone. Number one is something that I learned from Ira Glass, the creator of This American Life. He had once said, I think I saw him speak somewhere. He said that sometimes he just likes throwing theories out at people, right? Even if, even if they're wrong, it makes people think about something in a different way. So, you know, somebody could be telling a story about how they did this or that. And he would say, you know, did did you do that because, you know, you were thinking about how this person might react if you said this other, whatever, you know, like he would just kind of, he would just sort of theorize and throw it at them. And it was more interesting if he was wrong. Because if he's right, they would say, oh yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. But but usually, you know, I mean, if you make up a theory about what somebody's doing, you're probably not right, but you force them then to explain themselves in a more interesting way. Because people often have a... Uh, a kind of default way of explaining how they're thinking or something that they did. You know, people repeat themselves. The things that I've told you in the last 20 minutes, some of them I've I've said before. And so I kind of have a format of how I, they just come out of my head kind of similar because they've already been shaped that way. But if you force me to restate it or to think about it, it coming at a different direction, I'm going to have to think deeper about it. I'm going to tell you something more insightful just naturally because you've forced me to reevaluate the thing that I'm thinking about. I love that. Yeah, try that on. Yeah, it's great. Did you say I do it all the time because you thought? <laughs> I'm just joking with you there. But you know, listen, go go listen to this American Life and how they how they interview. Uh, you hear it on the show all the time. The hosts are always doing that with their sources. And once once I heard Ira say that, I, I realized that that was what was happening regularly, and it always leads to interesting stuff. It's such a good interview technique. It is. And I think that goes for right on with our listeners in terms of how they need to be with their prospects and the people that they're, the audience that they're trying to build. It's great, great advice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, it, you know, and it also shows you, it just shows you that you're, you're thinking really hard about how the other person thinks and feels. Because if you're willing to offer some kind of theory, you're showing that you're trying to understand someone, that you really want to get to the heart of how they think. And people like that. People want to feel understood and they want to feel like you're trying to understand them. And I think that they'll open up, you know, whether or not you're on a microphone or, or in a bar or, or, or a conference room, they'll open up more because you're showing that effort. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. You know what? I have a... Uh an idea that just popped into my head as you were sharing all this. This could actually all be turned into a piece of thought leadership, commercializable thought leadership for you, you know, teaching this skill to folks like us and other thought leaders. You need to go out there and uh, properly interview their prospects and target markets is a skill. It could be very valuable in helping them become commercial. Put this together in a bit of a program, sell it online, buddy, and you might have another revenue stream for yourself. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good idea. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I uh, well, you know, I mean, this is uh, this is certainly the kind of job that is is going to lead to all sorts of really valuable things 
after. Not that I'm in any rush to leave this job, but you know, nobody holds on to a journalism job forever. So uh, in, in, in hopefully many years down the line, I think that I'll have built up quite a lot of insight into the ways that the things I know best help the entrepreneurs that, that I've, I've, you know, learned to, to kind of understand and serve. And that's going to, that's going to serve me really well. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a great, great background and experience already in being with Entrepreneur Magazine. I mean, that's setting you up for greatness. It's awesome. You know, I've got a, a question that came from one of our community members on the Business of Thought Leadership Facebook private group. I put on a message this morning, letting everybody know we're going to be speaking with you. And so Victor Menashe has asked a question, which I thought was pretty good. So I'm going to ask that. The business model for print publications and media in general is changing. There are more specialty magazines than ever before. There are more radio channels, websites, more podcasts, more published books. Anyone with a digital device can publish. How does Entrepreneur Magazine stay relevant, expand the base, and stay at the top of the heap? Essentially, he's asking, like, what's that strategy look like for you? Yeah, it's a, that's a really, really great question. And honestly, one that every media outlet, every established media outlet, every new media outlet is figuring out. And so I, I can't... I can't tell you that we have all the answers to that, but I can tell you how we're thinking about it. So yes, certainly uh, being a print magazine in today's media economy is very challenging. It has its upsides and its downsides, right? The upside is that it still feels like a premium product and sources want to be in the print magazine. And if we want to get, you know, if we want to get a really big CEO or a celebrity, they want to be in the print magazine. It's hard to get them on the website, but they want to be in the print magazine, even though more people read the website. That's <laughs> you know? that's, because, that's very cool thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's just it's just it's the thing that's out there. It's the most forward facing part of the brand. It's it's on the newsstands. It feels special. It feels exciting. Also, advertisers will pay a lot more to be in a print magazine than they will digitally. And so, from a business standpoint, even though the print magazine is significantly harder to produce in every possible way, by which I mean it obviously costs more to get out because you have to print and distribute it. The, the We pay writers, and this isn't just us, this is everybody in media, we pay writers better to be in the print magazine than we do online. We spend a whole ton more on photography for the print magazine than we do. We don't spend any money on photography on, well, I guess that's not true. We, 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 we subscribe to wire services and, you know, places where we can get photography that we, that we use on the, on digital, but, but in print, we produce a lot of our own original photography that is extremely expensive. And then of course we also have to have a photo director and that is expensive. So there's a, there's a lot of investment that goes into the print magazine. But it's worth it because it feels like an anchor for the brand and it's something that the rest of what we do can revolve around. And then we need to figure out what that means. So of course we obviously we have a website and we have an events business and we have we have a books business and we're and we're trying to figure out what other things you know we're gonna do. Are we gonna launch podcasts? Probably. I you know, I, I've been talking about that. Uh, are we gonna kind of figure out other kinds of events and programs that work for people? Yes, we're thinking about that. I, you know, I think ultimately. The, the main thing for any media outlet is uh, what's your brand equity? You know, what, do people trust you? Do they trust the name? Do they want to be a part of that? And I, I, I feel 
I feel good and and grateful that people recognize the name entrepreneur and they feel good about it. You know, we just had a conference in Long Beach, California that I flew out to MC. I, I live in Brooklyn. And I talked to people, they flew around the country to come to this thing. And I asked them, did you come out because you like, what did you read in the, in the agenda that made you come out here? And a lot of them hadn't even read the agenda. They came out purely because it was an entrepreneur event. And that is fascinating. And it, it gives us, I think, a lot of great insight into, into how we already have a base of people who are willing to do something just based on the faith of the brand alone. So how do we stay relevant? I mean, you know, we, we do the very best that we can to understand what our audience wants and deliver that and surprise them with new things that they may not have realized that they want. And to me, as 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 someone whose job is to be editor-in-chief and think about the editorial, my you know, I think a lot about storytelling and I think a lot about what is it that people react to and what do they want more of and what at the end of reading a magazine do they feel the most satisfied because they came across and how do I give them more of that? And so I'm experimenting. I'm constantly experimenting. You'll you'll see in our January issue, the January issue is going to look totally different from the way the magazine did before. As I, I took over as editor-in-chief in September, you know, we work on like a three-month lead time and I've spent I've spent a while kind of re- thinking the magazine, what it looks like, how it flows, what kinds of stories are in there, because I think that it's time for an upgrade. Everything should be upgraded. Of course, every business should be growing. Every magazine should be evolving. And so, you know, it's it's my first step. And then I'm going to sit down with readers and I'm going to try to understand what did they like? What did they not like? What would they like more of? And then I'm, I'm going to try to calibrate to that. I mean, you know, you, nothing is in a vacuum, I suppose. And and uh, media is is really challenging. But if we build trust and we build value, I think people come back. That's awesome. I love I love that insight. And I'm excited about January's episode. In fact, I was just thinking we should do something fun, Nikki, where every one of our listeners that buys the January episode takes a picture of it and posts it on our in our Facebook group. We're going to give them something cool. Yeah, January issue, you mean, Janu- but yes. Yeah. What did I say? Yeah. Episode. <laughs> episode. You're thinking I'm in podcast, podcast world, Jason. <laughs> yeah. But every, yeah, so all the listeners, you got to buy Entrepreneur Magazine in January. We're going to have a big Entrepreneur Magazine party online. Post we'll start, it. yeah, we'll, maybe we can start something with a subscription. We can talk to Jason offline about what to do. We'll yeah, figure it's great. it out. Oh, Find sure. it, take I'd a be, picture I'd, of I'd it, post it. Yeah, so, I'd be happy to work with you guys to to you know couple of create some kind of benefit uh, subscription benefit for your listeners. And also, you know what I would really love if you're going to do that, and that's awesome. Thank you. What I would really love is is for me to be looped in so that I can hear what people are saying and and how they're done. reacting. Done. 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 So, a couple of thoughts for you before we get to the wrap up phase of what we need to yeah. do today. One is, if you ever want to talk podcast, Michael and I, uh, we've been through the wars. We've figured out what works and what doesn't. We'd be happy to have you pick our brain or whatever you want to do in yeah, that thanks. regard. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. You know, I, I have, um, I appreciate that. And, I, and I, may, I may take you up on that. I, um, I just dipped my toe into the podcast world myself on, on, as, on a solo project. This is not, re- not related to entrepreneur, uh, but I've been having a real blast with it. It's called Pessimists Archive. And <laughs> it is a... It, it is a podcast about, it is not a pessimistic podcast, actually. it's a very optimistic podcast, but it is a podcast about the history of unfounded fears of technology. So I go back and I try to understand why did people freak out 
about a new technology that today we don't think of as scary. So for example, the first episode was the Walkman. In 1982, America, and people don't remember this, but in 1982, America was freaking out. They were uh, so afraid of the Walkman. It was a hot topic. There were newspaper columns talking about how the Walkman was tearing people apart. It was creating a zombie society, right? We, we forget that. We forget that. But we say the same fears about new technologies today. And what I want to point out to people is that we're in a cycle and we fear the new thing and then we forget that we feared it. And then we apply those exact same fears that never came true to the new thing again. And we need to break that cycle because that cycle is ridiculous and I think that it, it's harmful. So it's a richly produced podcast. You know, it's it's me going out and talking to a lot of different people and stitching it together into, um, into, you know, something that's kind of more report with a script that I, you know, that I kind of move through. It's been a lot of fun, but as a, it's me and one other person and we can't get those things out more than, uh, uh once every two months. So I got to figure out how to make those faster because it's, it's a lot of work, we can, but it's really rewarding. We, we can, we can definitely give you some thoughts around that. And, you know, some of the other things you said about how to leverage the brand, we can have an offline conversation with you around that too, because to, to us, that is an example of the positioning and the thought leadership of the entrepreneur brand. And there's a lot of cool things you can do. And Michael and I, you know, not to brag, but we specialize in helping folks take what they got that's really great in 10x and even 100xing the results from it. And we've done it for a few people. So happy well, to have I'd that discussion. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, thank you. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So let's wrap this up now and get to our three expert action steps. So this is where we ask you to give us and our listener your three expert action steps of what you think they ought to do in order to take their thought leadership and the business aspect of it forward. Oh my gosh. I should have, this I should have prepared for. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> let's see. All right. I'm going to, I'm just going to fill these in with the, with the very first things that I can think of. Um, and number one is just to, to go back to the issue episode confusion there. It reminded me of way that a editor at a magazine that I knew got laid off and got a, his next job was at a radio station, a public radio station. And I heard that in meetings, he kept referring to their readers instead of their listeners. You know, he would be talking to the staff and he was, you know, we need, we need to do this for our readers instead of our listeners, because now they're a radio station. And he, he didn't last very long in that job because he couldn't adapt to the culture and the new mindset of, of who the audience was. And, and so I guess, you know, the way uh, that I'm going to wrap this thought is that it's really important to be mindful of how language reflects culture mm -hmm. and to, to be thoughtful about the words that you're using and the way that you're, you're talking about whoever it is, your, your customers, your, you know, your, your clients and the language that they are sensitive to, because even something as silly as listeners and readers broadcasts a lot about your perspective and, and the, how much you understand and are making the effort to understand. So I guess that's number one. Number two is you, you had made a brief reference to this, but I'm going to go back to it and expand upon it, which was that I had written in another one of my editor's notes, that sometimes it's important to understand, sometimes you're not the story. You're not the story. If you're an entrepreneur and you're pitching your company to a media outlet, you may not be right for a big profile. And that's okay, because here's the good news. 
even though you're not the story, you can be part of the story, which means that maybe you want to tell a reporter, hey, here's this really interesting thing that's happening in my industry. Not enough people know about it, and they should. And I'd be glad to tell you about how it impacts my business, right? And the reporter will be really happy to hear that because that's what reporters want. They want to know insightful things that are happening that impact lots of people. And so if you're going to be able to tell them some really interesting thing that's happening in an industry, and you happen to also be an example of that, well, then you can be part of a story. And that is good too. Not not everybody gets the big profile and the big photo shoot because there aren't actually that many versions of those stories. There are a lot more stories that are just including lots of different companies. And so I would really encourage people to think of themselves as part of the story. And then number three, you know, I'm actually going to go back to understanding audience because I think that it's so important across all different industries and, and tell you that magazines and all media, in fact, have two different audiences. There is the real audience, and then there is what the publication thinks of as the audience. And those are in the Venn diagram of audience. There's an overlap, but they are also kind of distinctly different things. And I'll give you an example. I used to work at Men's Health. When we as editors at that magazine would think about who, you know, what what stories are we going to run? Is this story right for us? We think of the reader and that reader is like a young guy. He's, you know, he's like 25 to maybe 35. He doesn't quite have everything together. He's still looking for the right job. He's still trying to get his body in shape. He's, he's, you know, he's probably not married. Maybe he's dating. Right. There's this there's this perceived reader, this ideal reader. And and some magazines actually have a name for that reader. They'll get they, it'll be like Steve is the reader. Right. Like they <laughs> I, I didn't I never bought into that. I thought that was ridiculous. But that some magazines do that. But but here's the thing about men's health. That's not the magazine reader. That's part of the magazine reader. Like those guys definitely subscribe to the magazine. But younger guys than that subscribe to the magazine, considerably older guys than that subscribe to the magazine, guys who are 25 to 35 but love their job and are married and have two kids subscribe to that magazine. Right. So uh, there's, but the thing is that a magazine has to kind of project something and, and, and stand for something. And it can't just, every magazine can't just be like an omnibus bill. It can't just have everything in it. So they, they have to narrow the way that they think. And so they have a perceived audience, which may be different from the real audience. And so when you pitch a publication, it's really, really important to understand what the perceived audience is, because that's how you know if a story is going to be right for them. Is that, audio, is that story right for their perceived audience? And you can kind of figure it out by just spending a lot of time reading and understanding what's in that publication. You'll get to you'll get a sense of what an editor thinks they're they're writing to. And and you know, I think that 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 idea as kind of weird as it is carries over into a lot of other parts of of life and business, right? Because you know, you you want you're if you're a business, you know, you of course you want to be relevant to a to a very broad amount of people, but you you don't want to try to talk so broadly that you're talking to nobody, right? You you have to figure out kind of who you're speaking to and uh and and how if you speak in, in a very specific way that can feel attractive and, and interesting to people who may, you know, may not be right in that kind of laser line of, of how you're talking. So audience and perceived audience, I think it's important to kind of remember both of them. 
That's fantastic. And look, so we are definitely going to put the name of your uh, personal podcast project, The Pessimist Archive, into the show notes so people can go and check it out. We're going to do something with you guys around the January issue. We'll uh, have some offline discussions about that and set up a time to talk about that. So stay tuned because Jason is going to be back and it's going to be fun. And we're going to tie it in with what T and the magazine are doing with their new launch in January. Thank you so much, Jason, for being on the show. We're looking forward to having you back. This was an absolute fabulous episode. Thank you, oh, Jason. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much. This was a lot of fun. And, and I, you know, I really, really love how you guys are jumping on the engagement on, on, on January. I, I want to hear what people think. And you know, I, I, want to, um, I want to give them what they want. So um, I'm all ears. Good awesome. stuff. Good stuff. We'll make sure we, uh, we organize a time with you so we can go and map that out. We think that'll be a lot of fun and impactful for everybody. Sounds great. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. Take care. Take care, Jason. That wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership. To get the notes from this episode, visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com as well. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think. And remember in January, that new episode of entrepreneur.com magazine. Make sure you grab a copy, post it on the Business of Thought Leadership private Facebook group, and we're going to send you something really cool. All right. Take care. You've been listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening.